Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. One week down at the U.S. Open, one week to go. So as we generally do in a situation like this, I'll spend the first portion of the show looking back at some of the most notable things that happened uh, this week and talking about those, whether it be Sasha Zverev getting upset, uh, the Kyrgios-Federer match, the Mohamed Layani incident, all that stuff. And then in the second portion of the show, I'll look ahead at the quarterfinals and uh, I'll talk about uh, each quarterfinal matchup. Some of them are just potential matchups, but I'm pretty sure at this point, Uh, We have a pretty good idea of what these quarterfinal matchups are going to be, so I'll go over that, and if you want, you know, your Djokovic talk, your Nadal talk, your Del Potro talk, that will come in the uh, the preview, in the quarterfinal previews. I'll also talk about kind of what they've done in the tournament so far. A couple of housekeeping things. Monday Match Analysis is now on audio. That means you can listen on Google Podcasts. That means you can listen on Spotify. That means you can listen on iTunes. It's actually been on here for three weeks now, and I just haven't said anything about it, which has been very silly of me. On YouTube, I haven't said anything. So I'm going to put the iTunes link in the description, and it would be great and much appreciated and very helpful because of how iTunes works if you could rate and review. And also something that helps is if you unsubscribe, if you subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe, for some reason, that, uh, that helps Monday Match Analysis uh, move up the, the charts on iTunes. So um, if, you, if you're someone who does a lot of driving or, or something like that, uh, now uh, this show is available on audio, which I'm very excited about. Uh, the cam- my, my camera has um, been fixed, so I should look a little bit better. Uh, still working on getting this background a little bit better, but uh, that's, what's, uh, that's what's going on at the moment. And then um, in terms of what's coming up later this week, it's a very busy week. There will probably be some very, very late night videos, uh, but I am pretty compromised in terms of my schedule uh, when it comes to midweek videos, but I'm going to try my best. With that being said, let's get into this, and I haven't really decided the order I want to do this, but I I guess I'll I'll start with Federer and Kyrgios. The two had had played nine sets previously, and eight had went to tie breaks, so... What changed here? Why was Federer able to win so much uh, more easily than he has in the past? And what does that mean for Roger Federer moving forward? And what does that mean for Nick Kyrgios? So first of all, um, Nick Kyrgios, I, I compare him to a fighter with a very weak chin. If, you, if Nick Kyrgios goes break, down a break, if he goes down a break, he's pretty much done. 
And, you know, if Nick goes down a set, he's one of the more unlikely players. He's one of the more likely players on tour to to sort of call it quits. Um, in, In that respect, I feel like he doesn't take a good punch, if you know what I mean. And the first set really could have gone either way. Nick had triple break point in the first set, if I remember correctly. Uh, couldn't get it done. It was a tightly contested set. I, I wouldn't really say Roger Federer definitively got the better of play in that first set. He just happened to convert on a break point and win the first set. And as Nick does, he just didn't take that punch very well. And the first set ended up being um, his best tennis. More importantly, though, I do think that there was a difference in Roger's mindset. And for the first time ever, with these two guys on the court, I was sensing that Roger Federer had some disdain, some contempt for Nick Kyrgios. And I think that we got a very determined, uh, even even more determined than, than usual, Roger Federer against Nick um, in, the thir- in that third round match. I noticed four things, actually. The first thing is, and I, I got to make sure uh, I remember them all. The first thing is when Federer hit the, the around the pole shot. Um, Nick tried to get Roger's attention to congratulate him, and Federer ignored him. Did not want any bit of that interaction. So that's the first thing. Second thing is after the second set, I thought that Federer glared at Nick for a really long time across the court. The third thing is that when Nick tried to saber, Federer tried to peg him, which isn't, you know, maybe it's just a good tactic if someone tries to come up. If you if you hit him, you win the point. But it, it seems a little bit un-Roger Federer-like to, 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 to roll with that tactic. So Federer tried to hit him with, with the ball. And then at the end, when Federer was asked about uh, John Millman, he went out of his way to say that Millman was a hard worker and that it's the hard workers that are respected by the top players. And the way he went out of his way to say that, I feel, was a shot at Nick, albeit, um, you know, a almost like a it's subtext there. Um, but nonetheless, I think it was a shot at Nick. So I do think that Federer found an extra gear here just with you know, a, a desire to really shut the door on Nick here, really step on his throat. Um, and I thought that we got a an extremely determined Roger Federer. And he got into quite the mode, let's just say. In the second set especially, uh, Federer got into, into one of those special shot-making modes where n- really nobody can, nobody can match that kind of level when Federer gets in that mode. And even Rafa has said... When Federer gets in that mode, my job is to wait until Federer gets out of that mode. So in the second set, Federer got in that mode. And, and w- when Nick's two sets to love down, the guy's not going to fight very hard. He's just not. Okay, now I want to get to Sasha. And I do have um, a little bit more detailed breakdown. I haven't done a real good detailed breakdown in a while. I actually forgot to show the thumbnail to start. Because normally, uh, whatever the thumbnail is, that's my first topic. But in this case, I, I decided to make it my second topic. So there's Sasha's broken, cracked racket. This was after the fourth set, uh, or in the fourth set, not after the fourth set, when, when Sasha was up a break at 3-1, serving at 1-3, I should say. No, no, serving at 3-1. And he double-faulted the, uh, his service game away and smashed his racket. 
they went back on serve. Sasha would actually lose from from three one up. He would lose the next uh, five games consecutively, uh, losing serve twice. So once again, um, and I looked back at some some previous videos, uh, namely the Wimbledon Monday match analysis in between, because I wanted to remember what I did um, the Monday in between um, for for Wimbledon, and. In this case, it was the same thing. Uh, part of it was Ernest Gulbis was the thumbnail, and part of it, uh, a brief portion of it, was talking about how Sasha was upset. So here we go again. We're a week, uh, a week through the tournament, and the main storyline here is Sasha Zverev is out again. If you look at his major results, he lost in the third round at the Australian Open. He lost in the third round at Wimbledon, the third round now at the U.S. Open. His best result, finally making a quarterfinal at the French. So now this is two years where Sasha hasn't really done anything at the majors. And this one stings a little bit more because there isn't, there, you know, there isn't really, oh, but the next one. If you lose Wimbledon, U.S. Open's in two months. If you lose at the French, Wimbledon's in a month. And, you know, if you lose at the Australian, well, the year just got started. When you have had a bad major season and you lose in the U.S. Open, uh, that, is, that is a tough pill to swallow. That's really disappointing. A lot of people speculated early on in Sasha's struggles that it's physical, that Sasha's body needs to develop. Sasha um, is just kind of getting tired, and that must be it. Uh, at this point, I think that people have kind of rightly so moved on from that. We've seen him play a lot of tennis and, and be okay physically. And then, you know, there has been some speculation that it's mental. And this, to me, was the first match where it became painfully obvious that Sasha's problems are mental. Because I saw a Sasha Zverev that did not want to fight. And it really came out in his shot selection. Two weeks ago, I did a video on shot selection and tactics in in tennis in singles, and you're going to hear a lot of this termino- a lot of that terminology come into play here. Sasha Zverev in the in the fourth set, especially, which is the set that I went back and, and watched because I I missed the first three. Uh, that's all that's all I needed to see as far as I'm concerned. Sasha was up three one in that in that set, as I just mentioned, and uh, things really spiraled downward from there. So let's take a look at a a few examples here. Uh, For the audio version, I'll just try to describe it. For the YouTube version, you'll get some visuals here. So right now, 15.30, it's three all, and Cole Schreiber is going to hit a short slice up the middle of the court. So Sasha has this low. He he has to hit this pretty low. And what he's going to do is he's going to hit a nothing ball to Coley's backhand, and come to the net. That is an easy pass for Cole Schreiber. He gives Sasha a tough volley, and Sasha misses this volley long. So let's take a look at why Sasha decided to come to the net. And you're going to see a common a, a common theme here with these Verif points. He is pulling the plug early on these points. He wants out. He wants the point to end. He doesn't want to suffer. And that was the problem in this match. And I think that... He was thinking, you know, down two sets to one again, like he was three times at the French. He was thinking, how am I here again? Now, Cole Schreiber, 34 in the world. So not the, you know, he's no scrub. But I think Sasha was thinking, 
Why am I here again? And totally lost it. Look at this. Look at where Sasha's at here. How's the incoming ball? I would argue the incoming ball is pretty strong. Because of how low Sasha is, I think the incoming ball is strong. Um, his opponent's court position is strong. Cole Schreiber's in perfect position here. So the incoming ball is good. Your opponent's court position is good. Your court position, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, that's pretty good. He's inside the court. But ultimately, two of three factors would suggest that Sasha should probably hit a trade here. There is no place to really, you know, maybe you could build, but there's no way, you know, this is a hard ball to attack. And to hit this ball and to come to the net means you just want out of this point. Because now let's take a look at this. Now now let's take, why do you come to the net? So Sasha decides, I'm going to hit an approach shot here. I'm going to attack. Meanwhile, two out of the three decision makers would suggest he should not have attacked. Now he comes to the net. And when you come to the net, the, the one decision maker, it's actually the fourth decision maker, but it's the only one that applies to your court position, um, it's, it's outgoing ball. What about this outgoing ball suggests that Sasha should come to the net? Nothing. It's a weak ball. It's down the middle. There's no depth. There's no pace. It doesn't stay low. There is nothing about this ball that suggests Sasha should come in. And Sasha did this a few times in this fourth set. And not to mention when he got easy volleys, he looked like a fish out of the water at net. So there's an example of Sasha, something I saw a few times in this set, going to net where it wasn't the right play. And that just means you want out. That means you don't want to suffer. Let's look at one more example. This is Cole Schreiber with the backhand. Uh, it's the same game. It is deuce now. And Cole Schreiber is going to rip this backhand. This is, in, in my estimation, about you know an 80-mile-per-hour back, uh, backhand. As you can see, Sasha needs to hit an open stance backhand. He's outside the court, and he's going to kind of try to rope it down the line here. He doesn't miss it, but it's too far to the middle of the court. He doesn't put any height on it. It's a, he puts a lot of pace on it, and ultimately, he's in terrible position. Cole Schreiber hits a cross-court forehand that has Sasha on the stretch and Sasha on this, um, on this defensive slice forehand um, hits it long. So let's take a look at this. Let's take a look at this backhand by Sasha, and let's talk about what shot he should have hit. The incoming ball is very strong. By Cole Schreiber. It has great angle and it has great pace. Um, Sasha's court position is weak. He's in the doubles alley, and, and this is very important. You can, you can tell that this was a hard hit ball, and video would do it more justice, but as you can see, Sasha's stance is an open stance. And very rarely should you go hard down the line with an open stance backhand. Now, Sasha has a great, you know, unless your opponent's at the net, you have to hit a passing shot, uh, something, something along those lines. But, but right here, Sasha needs to defend. Sasha needs to defend or trade. Uh, Cole Schreiber's court position, by the way, is somewhat weak, which might be Sasha's rationale um, to go down the line. But, but that's something where players are baited all the time. When a player is off the court but hits a really strong ball cross court, players try to go line because the other player is off the court. It's, extra it's extraordinarily hard to change direction when your court position is bad 
and the incoming ball is strong. It's very hard to change direction. So Sasha here misses his spot. It's not close enough to the line. But more importantly, because he's hitting an aggressive shot here, because he injects pace and hits it flat, he has no time to recover to the middle. So where he should have hit a trade cross court, a neutralizing ball cross court, and if you're going to go line, you got to make it loopy. You got to make it safe. He goes hard down the line here because he wants this point to end, because he wants out of the point. And it kills him. Cole Schreiber has the whole court on his forehand to hit into, and it pays dividends. So to me, this was the first time where we saw Sasha in a Grand Slam match um, so demoralized with himself based on his history. And I have no doubt that this was because of history where he didn't really want to fight. And it was because he was thinking about how bad a year he's had at majors, whether it be this year, whether it be last year. And he's like, I can't believe it. And he, he was so demoralized, he didn't want to fight. Uh, there were other occasions where he should have went cross court. He should have neutralized. He should have defended. He tried to attack down the line. He made errors. I mean, this was uh, repeatedly in the set. He was pulling the plug early. So that's what I'll say about Sasha. The last thing before the quarterfinal preview is the Mohamed Layani incident, and I think the U.S. Open handled that correctly. They, uh, they, they acknowledged that Layani did the wrong thing, but they didn't punish him, and I think that that's just about uh, what, what should have been the outcome there. If you don't know what I'm talking about, um, in a match between, and I, I wish I pulled up, pulled up the video here, but it's too late for that, in a match between... Uh, Pierre Hughes, Herbert, and Nick, uh, Nick Kyrgios. Kyrgios was down a set and three love and wasn't really trying hard. He was tanking. It was a very hot, humid day. And at that point, renowned and respected chair umpire Mohamed Layani got out of his chair and went to talk to Nick. And there's a lot of things that could, can, could they were not picked up by any of the microphones. Here are some of the things that were picked up by the microphones. I like you. You're better than this. You're great for the sport. So basically, Leani was giving him a pep talk to try to get him to try harder. And I think that Muhammad was in the chair. And as the chair umpire, one of the rules you have to enforce is the players need to give um, 100% effort. Otherwise, it, it is, in fact, a code violation. So... Leoni was, I don't know if he gave him a formal warning verbally, um, but he was trying to get Kyrgios to, to try harder for the fans and, and, you know, just to comply with the rules. His heart was in the right place. But there was, um, there was too much extra contextualization and editorialization on Leoni's part to really try to get Kyrgios motivated and, and to, you know, first of all, to get out of your chair and to go face to face with him and have a conversation is, as, as Roger Federer said before his match with Kyrgios, um, that's in itself too much from Leoni. Leoni needs to say, Nick, you need to try or I'm going to give you a code violation. That is protocol. Leoni went beyond protocol to do something that he thought was good, but turned out to be competitively unfair. And 
that's the end of it. Ultimately, um, I, I hope to see Leoni in the chair for big matches later in the tournament. He made a mistake. It won't happen again. That's all. Okay. It is time to take a look at the quarterfinals. And I'll start with the top half. In doing so, I'm going to get a chance to talk about Nadal, um, to talk about Del Potro, Team Isner, everyone in the quarterfinals um, in, in some more depth. So I'm going to start with the match at the top. It's Dominic Team and Rafa Nadal. First of all, I tweeted this out. Here comes the, the uh, every show, the, the Twitter plug, at Gil Gross, Gil with two L's, underscore Gross. Please follow me on Twitter. Um, I believe the link is in the description as well. I'm really happy for, for uh, Dominic because this is his first quarterfinal in a major outside of clay, and the guy is way too talented to be a clay court or bust guy. So uh, a really, a really impressive straight sets win over Kevin Anderson. I believe he needed five sets to get through Stevie Johnson. So, you know, it has been your typical Dominic team battles where he's off of clay and guys who he should be beating a little bit easier. It's a battle um, that that has happened. But this this latest match against Kevin Anderson might be one of his best hard court results ever. Um, so first of all, I'm really happy for Dominic. If you look at the head-to-head for um, Team and Nadal, they've actually never met outside of clay. Three wins for Dominic. I did not bring my notes with me. I wrote this down. Three wins for Dominic. I believe seven wins for Nadal. Let me double-check this. Oh, wait. No, I can't. Um, Yeah, I I believe, yeah, three to seven, I think, is the the head-to-head. Um. But it's, it's all been on clay. And Dominic is the only player besides Djokovic who's beaten Nadal on clay three times. Uh, he beat him in, in Madrid li- this year. I thought that w- what team did best in that match was attack Rafa's second serve, go heavy to Rafa's backhand, um, and then, you know, repeatedly, and then eventually pull him out wide to the forehand a- as a finishing shot. Here's how I see this match going. And then after this, I want to talk about Nadal a little bit. I think that the thing that hurts team on faster courts is his court position. He does not get away with standing as far back as he does on clay on other surfaces. It's a problem on other surfaces. And against Nadal, he is going to need to do a lot more running than Rafa because the smart, you know, the best thing to do against Rafa is cut off his angles. Djokovic cuts off Nadal's angles, particularly his forehand cross court, but his backhand too. Novak cuts off his angles. Um, a guy like, um, like, like Hachinov, for example, the other day, uh, he cut off some of Rafa's angles. That's what you want to do. Dominic will not cut off Rafa's angles. So I think team's going to have to do a lot of running in the form that Dominic is. Um, and I think the, there's going to be a lot of neutral baseline rallies in this match. Both guys, they return from 15 feet back, and there's going to be a lot of balls in play. And Dominic Team can, can rip it with Rafa. He can hit as heavy a ball as Rafa, which you can't really say, maybe not off the forehand, but certainly if you combine the forehand and the backhand, he hits as heavy a ball as Rafa. This is going to be a flat-out slugfest. Ultimately, I see Dominic 
playing some close sets with Rafa. The first two three sets, maybe the first three sets, but Nadal is going to wear team down and take it out of team's legs because Dominic will have to do too much running and he will have to exert too much energy. That's what happens when you don't cut off the angles. Point after point after point, Dominic will be doing more, more running than Nadal. And here's the difference between Nadal and, and, and team. Rafa returns from really far back, but afterwards works his way into the court. Dominic kind of chills back there. He stays back there. And I just think that this is going to get very, very physical, and it's going to be even it's going to be more physical for team than it will be for Nadal. So I think that this is going to be uh, first of all, the only loser in this match is going to be the tennis balls. The tennis balls are going to get absolutely destroyed. There's going to be fuzz going everywhere. That's all I'll say. Um, so so the tennis ball will be the number one loser. But uh, ultimately, I really do think that this is going to come down to team um, gassing out because I think Rafa is going to run him too much. Um, on clay, best of three, team has been able to, to, to overcome that. Not not um, not cutting off the angles. Dominic has has been able to to overcome that. But best of five on a hard court, it's going to be a little bit different. Allow me to talk about Rafa for a second. A couple things. First of all, the number one thing I was looking for going into the U.S. Open was Rafa's serve. My reasoning, um, when it comes to playing Novak Djokovic, that is because God knows he can beat anyone else with without really you know serving any bigger. The thing is, um, if he's going to take that extra leap and beat Novak, what does he need to do? I just felt like he needs to serve bigger. And my, my rationale was he played impeccable baseline tennis at Wimbledon and still lost. Lost The difference was serve and return. And in the past, we've seen Rafa beef up his serve for the U.S. Open, namely uh, 2011, where Rafa started serving in the 130s for the U.S. Open. So I was kind of looking for that again. Is that going to happen again? And it hasn't happened at all. In fact, I think Rafa's serve has been pretty bad. It's just been a point starter. Against, Basile, um, against Hachinov, um, for sure, it was, it was merely a point starter. Now, I thought that, that Hachinov, I think Hachinov is a terrible matchup for Nadal, and I, uh, I got the close match that I was expecting, where a lot of people in the comment section uh, was not respecting Karen Hachinov like I told you, like I said you should. But um, it was a close match. The, the second note, so that's my first note is that the serve is not beefed up like I think that it needs to be. The second thing is we saw um, the tape return to Rafa's knee. Was it his, I think it was his right knee. I was lambasted in the comments after Toronto when Nadal said he was going to skip Cincinnati. And I said, not that he was injured. All I said was, it's a little concerning because Rafa doesn't normally skip tournaments if he's healthy. So now I have that question, is his knee healthy? And everyone freaked out to the point where I'm an open-minded guy. I think very highly of the viewers. So many people disagreed with me that I said, you know what? You guys are probably right. Rafa is probably fine. And his team probably said, Rafa, you got to skip this one. And Rafa um, said, okay, maybe it's time to start changing my ways. Because in the past... If Rafa's healthy, he plays. That's just that's just his past behavior. So when he skipped, I, I was a little bit concerned. 
all you guys were saying, that's ridiculous, he's fine. I'm like, you know what? Probably, okay, fine. He's fine. Now the tape returns, and it's been a really long time since we've seen the tape on Rafa's knee, and now it's indisputable. There's only one... We only see the tape go on his knee when his tendonitis is bothering him. So his tendonitis is bothering him. That doesn't mean he has no chance. That doesn't mean I'm an Nadal hater. It's, it's just the truth. When, the knee, when Nadal tapes the knee, his tendonitis is hurting. And it's something he can overcome. It's a pain injury. Um, it doesn't make him slower. It doesn't make him less explosive. But it hurts. Um, it's not good. It means he's more likely to lose. Um, and the 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 good news is that against Basilashvili, he took the tape off, which means it was feeling better. But it's something to look out for. And if you don't think it's something to look out for, you're in denial. Okay. Um, so Nadal and team. Nadal, I think, close in the beginning, not so close at the end of the match. Okay. Del Potro and Isner, I was really surprised looking at the head-to-head between Del Potro and Isner because I didn't realize how much success Isner has had. I remember the Miami match uh, earlier this year when in the semis where Isner beat an in-form Juan Martin Del Potro, but I did not realize that Isner has won four out of the last seven meetings. Del Potro had won the four previous meetings. That made up their entire head- head-to-head, but... um. In recent history, which is, of course, more important than distant history, John Isner has won four of seven. Why is that? Um, the return of serve is not one of the point is not one of the parts of Del Potro's game that I really regard very highly. Um, so, so that might be part of it. I think the second part of it is probably that when Del Potro is slicing his backhand, that gives Isner a lot of time to run around and and look for his forehand. A player that will really kill John Isner is a player who's a great returner and a player who who can, you know, once they're in baseline rallies, who can find the Isner backhand and also, you know, pull him out wide to the forehand, which Del Poe, of course, would, would be able to do. So I think it's it's likely those two factors. It's the return and also probably the frequency of the slice backhand, which isn't a good play against John. Um, it's a good play against guys with a little bit less power, with with less of an ability to generate so much off the forehand, and someone who who is, you know, looking for the who doesn't really look for the forehand. I mean, Isner is like a um, how should I say? I mean, he's like a a cobra ready to pounce on any opportunity he can get to run around his backhand and hit a forehand. So Del Potro. You know, maybe even his backhand, there's not a lot of pace on his backhand a lot of the time when his wrist is hurting him. So that could be part of it as well. And also, I think John, you know, in general, when he plays a guy who is more of a... Someone someone who's more apt to hold serve and a little bit less apt to break serve, I think John loves those matches, those tiny margin matches. So it's the guys who can who can break serve a lot and get a lot of plays, uh, a, a lot of returns in play. Um, I think you know obviously that's going to bother John more. The elite returners, I'd say. Um, so that might be why. I'm going to lean Delpo though for 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 this match, and it's it's mostly just because I think I think Del Potro is playing a little bit too good. That's the main reason. 
I think Del Potro looks, uh, especially in his match against Borna Chorich, his last match against Chorich, uh, he looked absolutely tremendous. He's thumping his backhand. His wrist looks really good. It really does. And also, I think with the humidity, these U.S. Open courts are playing very, very slow. And Del Potro's power really comes out in that. And and that would be a point for for the next match. So I I like Del Potro in this match. I think John Isner is getting disrespected in the odds. Because I saw when I checked, I saw Isner as a plus 275 underdog. Those odds are too high, in my opinion. But I, I do lean I do lean Del Potro. A well-rested Del Potro, he can dig in. Um and he's hitting over his he's doing a great job of hitting over his backhand. So that's good news for for finding John Isner's backhand. In fact, there there were times in the Chorich match where where he he almost took the slice out of the playbook. Um so I think I just think Delpo looks tremendous to the point where I am beginning to contemplate changing my pick. And you know, just based on what I've seen from Nadal and what I've seen from Del Potro, I imagine that Del Potro will have a really good chance if they meet in the semis. Um, I'm not changing my pick. I want to see them play their next match. I want to see Nadal play team. I want to see Isner play Del Potro. Let's move on to the bottom half. Oh, actually, this isn't the best visual. So Kane Shikori and Novak are through to the quarters. Um... Who who will play Kane Ishikori will be the winner of Gafan and Chilich, who are playing as we speak. Um, I started watching that match. Uh, Chilich is a set up and a break up, and then I started recording this. So God knows what's happening now, but uh, it looked like Chilich was going to get through. Regardless, I think K. And I thought that K was going to have a really big summer, and he didn't. So maybe, um, you know, he kept disappointing me, disappointing me, but now I feel like Kay has finally reached the point where um, he's playing his best tennis. It's, it's a little bit slower, which is nice for him. He can use his speed. Um, and then against Marin Cilic, Cilic is going to be exhausted. I don't know how hard Gafan is pushing him right now, but Cilic has played really long matches and Gafan has the shoulder injury. Which, by the way, I saw him flexing against Chilich. So we have an injured Gafan. We have a tired Chilich who hasn't looked overly convincing um, in this U.S. Open. Now, Demonor, I'm surprised Demonor didn't win the match because I felt like that had upset written all over it. Zverev lost right before Chilich came on court. And it's a terrible thing to learn that your draw opens up right before going on court. And Chilich is a stress ball. Uh, I, I've, you've probably heard, heard me say this before. I don't think Chilich handles his nerves well. So I thought that with Demonor's speed and defense, which can bother Chilich because if you make enough balls, you can often get an error out of Chilich. Um, and by the way, Demonor, he's the fastest player in tennis. I'm willing to say that right now. Um, so combining the stylistic advantage for Demonor and the fact that Chilich had probably learned about Zverev before going on court. That had upset written all over all over it. It nearly happened, but Chilich came back in the fifth set. What an effort by Marin, though. I, I, I have to say I was really impressed. Regardless, he's got to be wiped. He's got to be exhausted. And Nishikori has done a good job uh, keeping fresh. It's really humid out here. I played tennis today, and I got to tell you, it's not during the point, because during the point, you're fine. And then after the point... You're obviously out of breath. 
but that's normal. You're always out of breath. It's the recovery where you're trying to suck in air, but it's so humid out here that it's very hard. It almost feels like like you just can't breathe out there. And then next thing you know, you're on the line. It's time to play the next point. And and you still don't have your air left. You're still breathing heavy. That's what I felt today. Um, I'm a little bit, I'm sort of far from, from the city in, uh, in Syracuse right now, but still similar conditions, very humid, very hot. And it was, it was miserable out there. So guys who can stay off the court, it's, it's more important in this tournament than it normally would be. Normally, I think that fans overhype it. They put a little bit too much value on it. For this tournament, it's very valuable to stay off court. So I, I got K in that one. I think I like Nishikori. Another player who, who can defend very well, which, again, I like against Chilich. Um, Okay, and then the last one. Oh, wow. Sorry, guys. I didn't mean to not be showing my face that whole time. I was showing uh, the draw. I'm sorry. Um, the other one is Djokovic. Djokovic will play the winner of Federer and Milman. Federer's going to win. Should I knock on wood? I want to see Federer and Djokovic, so I'm going to knock on wood. I, I That would be a shame, sort of, if, 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 Milman, if Milman won. No disrespect to the uh, the Australian, but that would be a shame. Um, Federer, Djokovic, I've made my thoughts very clear. Both of them have looked fine. Actually, both of them have looked really good. So nothing about their form is going to make me change my pick. Um, I'm very hesitant to look at how well guys are beating lower-level opponents as a barometer for how it's going to go when these two meet. I will say that this court is playing so slow. It's a couple things. The humidity, by the way, slows the ball down. It's not just, it's not just the, the you know, tougher physical um, effects. It also slows the ball down. Uh, the U.S. Open is not at any altitude. Um... And I think, you know, the, those, those, are the main, those are the main two things. The heat speeds the ball up, but the humidity slows it down. That's an interesting, uh, you know, no, people don't really talk about that, but it's kind of important. Um, so this, this court's playing really slow, where I think Djokovic um, is going to be able to use his return and defense as usual. Um, and, and for Federer, I think he'll play better. But I just don't think Federer playing better, um, I'm not convinced that that's going to be enough to beat Novak. Novak's got to be the favorite here. So after after what we saw in, in Cincinnati and what we saw at Wimbledon, Novak's got to be the favorite. So we'll see. I'm really looking forward to team and, and Rafa. I'm really looking forward to, and then, of course, you know, Djokovic-Federer to see what happens. Um, we'll, we'll see how different that match looks from, from Cincinnati, and that'll be fascinating. Uh, but keep in mind, and I want to know your guys' thoughts, Del Potro looks better than Rafa right now, in my opinion. And I know I just said I don't like to judge form off of these things, but the thing is, last year U.S. Open semifinals. Let, let me let me go on this for a second before I go. Last year's U.S. Open semifinals, Del Potro didn't have much of a two-hander. He had half a two-hander, maybe three quarters of a two-hander, but not his full two-hander. And Nadal's able to pull him out wide to the backhand so well. That's his best asset. Um, that's Nadal's best play against Del Potro. He does it so well, and then he can come to the net when Del Potro takes a handoff, or he can use his forehand to attack. Um, so that's kind of what's happened in the previous meetings. Now at Wimbledon, Del Potro had his backhand. So 
you know, that was a very competitive match, a five-set match. I really don't like Del Potro on grass, though. I think the ball bounces too low, and I don't think that's good for him. So a higher bounce, a slower court, and I actually think a slow hard court, I think it's Del Potro's best surface because his power is accentuated. His power comes out even more than usual because other players can't hit through the court as well as him. When he played Federer at Indian Wells, the power difference became very apparent between Del Potro and Federer, where if Del Po and Federer played on grass, both players can hit easy winners from behind the baseline. On a slower hard court, it takes extraordinary power. And Del Potro being having the most powerful forehand in the world, I think he has the advantage there. That's all I have for you. Uh, like I said, I will be, uh, I'll do my best to be uploading videos during the week. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.